This episode of Priority One Podcast is brought to you by Patreon community sponsor, our friend Isaiah, and we thank all our patrons for their monthly support of Priority One Podcast. Command codes verified. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Hello, Admirals. You're listening to episode 198 of Priority One Podcast, the premiere Star Trek online podcast, recorded on Thursday, November 12th, 2014, and available for download or streaming on Monday, November 17th, 2014, at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Elijah. I'm Skiffy. And I'm Jace. Jace, welcome back. We hope the move wasn't uh, too taxing. No, no, not too bad. I finally have uh, materialized up here in the green mountains of Vermont, although they're they're getting whiter by the minute at this uh, at this very moment, as a matter of fact. Are you getting snow up there already, huh? This is actually the second snow we've gotten. It's been snowing in Minnesota like almost nonstop for the last three days, so I know I'm sending <laughs> it all your way right now just to get rid of it. Uh, I think that's what it looks like on the weather radar. Oh, man. All right. Well, uh, hopefully you don't get too terribly snowed in and uh, can acclimate to the nor- the more northern environments. No snow for you, Elijah? Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> well, Jace, why don't you do us the honor of telling us what we have in store this week? Absolutely. This week, we trek out the final frontier and go where no man has gone before, the surface of a comet. In Star Trek Online news, another week, another patch. Changes have been made to some of the core features of Delta Rising, and we'll get into that. In our Community Spotlight segment, we help you break down those item upgrade costs with Mighty Bob and his informative spreadsheet skills available for everyone to use. We also have an interview with environment artists Jadua Ross and Keenan Dawfelt, and they discuss the creation of the mission Dragon's Deceit. Finally, before we wrap up the show, we'll open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. Admirals, we can't thank you enough for believing in what we do each week, and for supporting us in the way that you do. We know that there are so many of you that never miss a show on Mondays, and appreciate the effort it takes to produce the show from week to week. We understand that many of you can't afford to donate via Patreon, and that's alright! It's amazing that we've already reached 88% of our monthly financial goals, up 10% from last week! Thank you very much for donating. And even if you can't donate, you can support us by dialoguing with us. Your comments, your questions, tweets, Facebook messages, in-game chats, they all mean the world to us and lift our spirits to engage with you. So even if you're a long-time listener but first-time caller, share your thoughts with us on iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, in-game, however you can reach us. All right, Admirals, let's trek out more of the final frontier and what it's like to land on a comet billions of miles away. I don't know. Then let's trek it out. Ten years ago, humans set out on a mission. We've already set foot on the moon and sent robotic representatives to Mars, Venus, and Titan. But we had a new mountain to climb. 
and that was to safely land a payload of instrumentation on a frackin' comet! That's right, a comet! Traveling about 10 miles per second! A few weeks ago, the European Space Agency's Rosetta spacecraft successfully caught up with Comet 67P, and on November 12th, it strategically landed the Philae robotic payload on the surface. Rosetta launched on March 2nd, 2004, and after slingshotting around the Earth and Mars a few times, Star Trek for the Voyage Home style, it finally caught up to the comet 6.4 billion kilometers away. Now, with about a 30-minute delay between Earth and Rosetta, scientists had to review several images and select the least dangerous landing site for the Philae lander. And that's where things could have gone really wrong. Even though scientists did their best to select the most ideal spot, the lander could have just bounced right off the surface. And with a 30-minute delay, there really isn't a chance for evasive maneuvers. And as a matter of fact, recent articles suggest that the lander did in fact bounce several meters away and off of its original landing spot. Nevertheless, the Philae touched down on the surface of the comet. And although there was a concern that its anchoring harpoons might have failed, there's still an opportunity to take several readings from the comet. So what does this mean for science? Well, in an interview on Anderson Cooper 360 on CNN, Bill Nye explained that experiments could provide insight into the mysteries of the universe. How did water form on Earth? Can microbes survive in the cold, dark silence of space? Can we send winter greeting cards to other worlds via comet carrier? But just how big is this comet, you might ask? Well, it didn't take long before people created some of the nerdiest comparisons. According to a high school physics teacher, it's at about 3.1 miles by about 1.5 to 2.4 miles. All I can say is we're going to need some offshore oil riggers fast. This one landing pushed this comet in the way of Earth. That's mm-hmm. what happened. I, I mean, ultimately, this is an amazing feat of for humanity. The, the fact that we actually landed on a comet relatively safely it's just fantastic it it just goes to show how how soon we might be to traveling and traversing the stars it's very exciting i have to say regarding nerdy comparisons the first thing i thought of when they started talking about the harpoons was not whales or anything else but the grapple on the nx class (laughs) deploy the grappler yep Discover something that you think the rest of our listeners would enjoy hearing about, a new advancement in science or tech that seems to jump straight out of Star Trek. Then send it over to us via incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. Well, let's find out what happened this week in Star Trek Online News. Computer status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. This week in Star Trek Online News, we have new release notes from today, a.k.a. Thursday. So most of you will have seen these prior to the weekend, but let's give you the highlights. The skill point requirement for achieving level 0 through 5 in Starship Mastery has been reduced by about 50%. Woohoo! Absolutely. Woohoo indeed. You won't lose any points if you're currently leveling up the mastery level will increase to fit the number of points you have. So you may find that you've jumped up a tier or so if you're already partway through the mastery system. 
Uh, there's also an issue that's finally been resolved with the loadout system where saving tray layouts were not saving all slots correctly. Thank God. Yes, it was, it was brutal. Very frustrating when I was trying to set up my Hazari Destroyer. And also a couple of other fixes. Salvage Specialist, the Talaxian trait, now functions correctly in space. And they've increased the hull percentage threshold. So you start having a chance to get salvage at 25% instead of 10%. A lot of times stuff was dying too quickly after reaching 10%. So we weren't getting procs of that uh, R&D salvage. Woohoo! And finally, there was an issue with give your all giving the wrong trait ability when it was slotted, uh, which was very frustrating for folks using it. I am thoroughly looking forward to the Starship Mastery having been reduced. I may now you know, switch into my uh, switch back into my tier six ships and try to get my money's worth for those because it was a it, I was not pleased but I'm glad I'm glad that they reduced it by by almost 50 percent so now when I log back into the game later this evening I'll switch back into the cruiser the tier six cruiser and try to level up that mastery and hopefully it'll I'll have a nice little boost pleasant little boost when I'm inside the ship take advantage of that mirror event while it's there because uh, you get bonus XP from that. And I did log in uh, earlier today and did see that my uh, I'm currently leveling my uh, Dauntless. That had increased by a full tier uh, and probably then some. Although I haven't checked uh, at the rate at which you earn now like to see how fast it is to level up, but should be a lot better. I also want to give a shout-out to uh, listener Michael Barnes who helped me out earlier. Due to my move and computer issues, I haven't been able to partake too much in the mirror event, and he reminded me to go ahead and slot the project anyway, so next time it comes around, I can get the Zephyr Cochran shotgun. Yes. Oh, yeah. Good idea. So, anybody else who is lagging, don't despair. You know, grab that project if you haven't. I'm excited because as soon as we're done recording, I should be able to run one more mirror and finally get that rifle. Nice. I'm two days behind on the mirror, but I'm hoping that I, I didn't do the Hakiv mirror event where you got the mirror Hakiv. Oh, yeah. So I'm hoping there's still enough time for me to be able to earn enough points for the Hakiv as well. I'm pretty sure I'm safe, so I should be able to get both. But yeah, that's a good idea. Even if you think you're not going to be able to get it, just have the, the event slotted. And, and next time the mirror comes around and you can get those trans-dimensional items... You can earn whatever reward it is. So the new upgrade system has been raising some serious concerns throughout the community with respect to how long and how expensive it can be for not only a casual player, but even the whales of the community. There has been an infograph that just started floating around earlier this week that uh, has been representing some of those interesting numbers. Now, the infographic for me seems really vague. The numbers, I don't know, they almost seem arbitrary and they aren't explained very well, which is why I much prefer the Excel spreadsheet layout that someone like Mighty Bob created, which we'll get into in our community spotlight segment coming up next after Star Trek Online News. But ultimately, what is consistent is that it seems that it will take a little under 50 days in order for a person to refine enough dilithium at the 8,000 refinement cap per day. But on top of that, you then have to try to find a way to earn well over 5 million EC energy credits. And that's if they're fortunate enough to get their hands on the rare materials needed to craft the superior tech upgrades for free. As it stands right now, the way I'm looking at it by using a spreadsheet like Mighty Bob's, which links, of course, will be in the show notes... In order for me to 
fully upgrade the items on my tier 5 upgrade Avenger for every console, for every weapon, it would cost me a total of 339 superior tech upgrades. Now, that's worst case scenario. That sounds expensive. That's yeah, that's that's worst case scenario. That's that's if they don't crit. The dilithium cost is about 365,000 if we round up. Is that the dilithium cost using the shortcut to make it instantly upgrade or is that just the the base cost? That's the base cost. Base cost, no shortcut. And then if I were to craft my own superior tech upgrades, assuming that I already have the rare materials and I don't have to buy them, it would be about 5 million EC, 5.1 million EC. So knowing that it costs about 365,000 dilithium without the finishing now dilithium costs, right? That's roughly about 2,367 Zen at its current exchange rate. Ultimately, if I wanted everything right now, right? If I wanted to log into the game and upgrade one ship and all its consoles and all its weapons, I'm looking at having to spend about $50 worth of Zen to convert into Dilithium and then give away a 10-pack key to somebody. Are you saying you don't want to pay $60 for that? Well, yeah, I think so, because this is where... Okay, if it was one ship, right, and one loadout, and I didn't have to worry about switching from anti-proton to, to, to phasers or whatnot... I think that would be reasonable in a conventional MMO, right? Where you have one role, you play that role, and you stick to that role. But Star Trek Online doesn't really cater itself to that. Star Trek Online caters itself to the modular items and the modular consoles that players can switch on the fly. So if I have eight weapons, that's that's still pretty expensive. That's still a, a, a heavy investment if I want to switch between anti-proton to fleet phasers or one of the uh, hybrid weapons. So I don't know. I'm on the fence right now about how expensive this item upgrade scenario is. Because if we look at the infograph, the infograph in and of itself is a little convoluted to me. You know, it's got three separate sections, one for free to play, one for free to play plus crafting, and one for dollars to zen. And if you look at it, it boils down to about 50 days, right, of having just to earn the dilithium. But what is the 120 million EC and the 5500 EC, and where are they getting the dilithium costs from? Because if, if you plug it into the spreadsheet, it doesn't match. Uh, yeah, I didn't do the breakdown on the dilithium, but it's in the same ballpark, so I assume there's just some, some slight vagary on the calculation. But uh, on the Loot Critters infographic, which we will include the link to this in the show notes as well, the free-to-play column is saying, assuming you have no materials. Let's just assume you're just doing normal modes, right? And you have no crafting, so you have to buy all the upgrades. It would be 120 million approximately EC based on, at the time, the, the rates they were going for on the exchange. The middle column where it says free to play plus crafting, that's assuming that you have 15 or above in your crafting, and so you can make your own but you still need those materials because, again, the materials only come from advanced or elite queues. So if you're just doing normals, you're not really getting them. Uh, you can get a limited amount from trading into lithium for the R&D projects, but 
that's only like every three days you can do that and it's random what you get so I don't really factor that in um, so there it drops down to 55 million because you've already invested so much in the crafting system and for the dollars to Zen right that comes out to be more because they're spending the difference on converting Zen into sellable items whether it be keys or, or tier 5 upgrade tokens or fleet ship modules whatever's going for the best rate so I get what they're saying with this they're pointing out well I don't know I, I won't speak for loot critter but to me this points out the bottlenecks in the uh, R&D materials which I know I don't have a fraction of the very rare materials I need yet so I'm gonna have to Oh no! Nobody, nobody does. Yeah, so that's going to involve a lot of uh, advanced and elite queues, or a lot of energy credits for for anybody. I thought I had quite a bit, but I was not really. I hadn't calculated out the magnitude of how much I would need of some of these. I, I believe I saw in the either the patch notes or the triple notes uh, within the last week that they are making loot boxes of crafting materials, advanced and elite queue uh, versions to where they are guaranteeing a purple material out of each one. Release notes, November 6th. Updated the reward rates of R&D materials in advanced versions of queues to guarantee that one very rare R&D material is received inside each pack. Well, this infograph was still published after that. Right, their point in the infograph is that you can't get it from normals. Okay. So that's fair. So with that, right, if it's gonna cost me 120 million EC, and 372,000 dilithium, right? I'm looking at having to buy five 10 packs of keys, right? Because the current rate right now on the exchange is about 2.5 million. So I have to buy at least five 10 packs plus another like 3,000 Zen, right? So ultimately, altogether, I'm looking at having to buy a total of uh, almost 8,000 Zen. Yeah, so right in the ballpark of what the loot critter infographic suggests about $83 probably with the bonuses and stuff. So that's that's a lot per ship. That's not very um, alt friendly and it's it pretty much makes me want to stay in my Avenger tier 5 upgrade and not ever switch to anything else or stick to a beam bank, right? Because even if, if I go from a cruiser to an escort, the consoles on a cruiser aren't the same consoles that I'm going to want to use on an escort. Right, arguably sure that there some builds could accommodate for something like that, but I would say that two out of the four ship modules that you know the deflector, the shield, the warp core, and the engine, two out of the four are always interchangeable between a, a cruiser and an escort. Right, typically I, I think it's safe to say. So I mean, for the player that wants to give cryptic money and say, all right, here, here's eighty something bucks let me get all of this now and pay a crafter to do this for me now. That's pretty pricey when you're going from ship to ship and then forget about alt to alt. Yeah, and I, I was actually discussing this with our very own Elliot Tan just last night. And I used to be, I mean, I've spent a lot of money on the game. You guys know this. Uh, I have every ship, et cetera, et cetera. Um, for as long as I can remember, I've had a full set of either elite or nearly elite gear on every single ship. And it's not at all even conceivable for me to try to upgrade all my ships so that they're ready to go. So I'm going to have to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of forced into the loadout system 
And not only that, I am considering just going through and wiping out nearly all of my gear and having, you know, one piece of, of or one set of each uh, rep set because uh, it doesn't pay to have more than one of those because, you know, why would you need it if you're only going to upgrade one set? And even then, you're looking at how many rep sets are there? There's there's five rep systems and some of those have multiple sets if you want one of each. It's just, it's not sustainable. It, for a, for a, from a consumer standpoint, it's not sustainable. Right. I mean, I am the pay-to-have-it-now player. You know, I don't want to wait 46 days or 186 hours to try to earn all of this stuff. And 55 million EC is already, I consider to be unattainable, let alone 120 million EC. I mean, the Dilithium, sure, you know, you can earn that. You can earn that pretty well steadily for 50 days. And I see, I get that. I get that. You know, you want players to stay in the game for 50 days. I understand that. But the EC is where the problem is happening, right? Where it's a combination of not just the dilithium, but the EC and having to earn 120 and then multiply both of those numbers times three ships, right? Let's just say you've got, you know, a cruiser, a science vessel, you know, an engineering vessel, a tactical vessel, and a science vessel. You know, multiply these numbers times three. Why wouldn't there have been a more middle-of-the-line type of approach to monetizing the whales of the game, right? $83 times three, that, no. There's no way I'm going to spend it. I'm going to have a hard time spending $83 for one ship. There's just, no, I'm not going to do that. $83 for one ship is a little overpriced for me. Forget about times two or times three. It should have been, I would think, maybe $30 per ship. Right, bring that price down to something a little more reasonable, and then you know once every two months, right? If you, if the average MMO, what used to be the considered fifteen dollars a month for a, a subscription, then or or make it fifteen dollars. I don't know. I don't I don't know what the happy medium would be, but I think the cost to just upgrade one ship and one one build to be eighty three dollars for the player that wants it now, right? There are a lot of players that want it now. There are players that don't want to be free to play and just want to. Here, here's here's $83 because I'm or here's X amount of money because I'm not paying Cryptic Studios $15 a month. Right? I'm not paying Cryptic Studios $15 a month or Perfect World Entertainment $50 a month. So I'm a little more inclined to spend money every three months, you know, something a little something over $15. I'm a little more inclined to do that than I would if I was paying if I were paying $15 a month. So again, Ultimately, what I'm saying is $83 for one ship. Anything over $50 to upgrade one ship right now, if I wanted to, if I wanted to be the impulse buyer, is way too much money for me. Way too much. You haven't even touched on the fact that there's more money if you want to upgrade from Tier 5 to Tier 5U. Right, right. The cost to do that in and of itself, right? I'm just talking about just... Let me jump in here for a second because I think we we can dig a little deeper than this because the issue is not so much that... Uh, the cryptic or perfect world has set this price too high because the things you're talking about is the dilithium exchange which goes with supply and demand and the value of selling things that are purchased with zen on the exchange which also is part of the economy right so they didn't they didn't set this up as it costs this much zen to upgrade a ship they set it up as You can use this much dilithium, you'll need this many resources, this much uh, energy credits. 
So the real issue is there's e there's got to be bottlenecks in the system that are leading all these things to cost a lot. Because I can't That's believe... That's a good point. That's a very good point. Yeah, I can't believe that it was their intention that it should de facto cost $83 to upgrade a ship. You know, that's that number we've repeated a lot, but that's based on current selling prices of uh, Zen for Dilithium and uh, energy credits for Keys, which change. But right now those things are at a premium because people are trying to do this, presumably, or else the demand would drop. So folks are trying to buy the resources on the exchange because they can't get enough of them. And that, you know, got uh, addressed in last week's patch, but maybe hasn't trickled down to have the full impact on the economy. Maybe the R&D event this week will help give an influx combined with the boost, you know, like a double double whammy, double boost. Well, and to your point there, this R&D weekend was added only last week to the calendar. Right. So that could very well be in response to some of the complaints that, that we're hearing. And if, if that alleviates the demand on the very rare R&D materials, then it will, yeah, the rest will kind of fall into place and the prices will drop a little bit. I mean, I don't know if that'll happen, but I agree. If that, if that in the short term, if that ballooned the supply so that the prices could drop and then afterwards it gets more normalized once the, sort of the market has caught up, that could help. But I think a lot of people for their Zen purchases, like the new ships, saved up ahead of time. That's why the Dilithium Exchange was so far the other way before Delta Rising and before the upgrade system went live. And now everyone's frantically upgrading and a lot of folks have gotten the ship or ships they want or the operations pack. So there's not an urgent press that, oh, I need to convert Dilithium to Zen, which is dropping the price down. Why on God's green earth did they only include three high-end upgrade kits and not continue to sell them in the store? I don't understand that because the three high-end upgrade kits in the operations, Delta Operations Pack, will take a, an item from 12 to 14, right? Yeah, they're they're outstanding. It's like, te, uh, what is it, 100,000 technology points? Yes. Right? It's, it's obscene. And you can use them with a catalyst, right? Yes, you can use them with a catalyst. Now, only three of them are included in the upgrade pack. Now, okay, I get it, right? It's an upgrade pack, and for the value of $125, you get a lot of that, right? I can, I'm not arguing that they should, oh, they should have added more in the upgrade pack. But why on God's green earth are they not selling these things on in, in the C-Store? I, I'm not sure that they should be in the C-Store, but I think this is a perfect lockbox reward. Something. Something, something that this is screaming lockbox reward. Something that is valued, honestly, honestly. Let's say, all right. So you've got you've got eight weapons and eleven consoles, right? So nineteen. So what do you think is a reasonable price per upgrade kit for nineteen upgrades? Well, let me throw this in there. They do have to be careful because people have put a lot into the R and D system, and these would then be directly competing with crafters trying to earn money off of what they worked for. So they'd have to be a little careful with that. The mitigating factor is that these give no points towards a rarity upgrade, which is a downside, and crafters would still have the edge there. I want to be able to purchase these Delta upgrade kits. $83 for a ship is, and again, I get what you're saying, is that that price is dictated by the economy. Right, it demonstrates that the economy is out of whack around this system right now. So, 
just with that caveat, I agree. So there should be something that allows me for a flat rate to upgrade all the items on my ship, purchase it, and get it done, right? Now, to your crafting concern, Skiffy, I still need a crafter to make me those omnidirectional beams at Mark 12 or whatever the case may be. Then maybe limit crafting, which it is, I believe, right? It's limited to Mark 12. You can only craft to Mark 12. So what is the concern for crafters? Is that then they won't make money on the kits? Well, uh, actually, a a lot of crafters are having trouble making money on the kits now because people who have reached 20 and crit a lot more, they're able to sell the upgrade kits cheaper because when they crit, they get more than one for the same materials. And so they can sell closer to cost uh, it, it's a complicated issue. It, basically, if if you made those available in the in the C store or as a lockbox reward, they would then be pretty much better than anything else, except when you're trying to increase the rarity of your items. They would be better than any other upgrade kit craftable by a crafter. You're saying by far, by a lot. So what? I still need a crafter to make me my my weapons. Hashtag slap in the face. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I mean, there's two sides to this argument. It could be argued either way that, yes, there should be a a shortcut purchase, flat out be done with it kind of option, or, you know, they should maybe just give more love to crafters so they can craft something better than the superior tech upgrades they have now. It's not just about giving more love to crafters, though. It's giving more love to the casual player or the free-to-play player or somebody that, okay, well, I I want my Avenger to be ready now so I can start getting into the elite queues. All right, so that's going to cost me $25. $25 to get my one ship and it's 19 slots upgraded to Mark 14. Forget about rarity. I'm talking, forget about rarity. I don't give it. Oh, yeah, it. rarity, that's a whole other argument. Forget about rarity. It's a whole other argument. We can talk about it in another show. But just to be able to get my tier 5 upgrade Avenger, which I love very much, to Mark 14 gear, I want a buy it now button at a reasonable price that's not $83 and dictated by the economy in the game. And I think that Perfect World and Cryptic would make a lot of money if they offered that buy it now button. And I don't think that it would affect crafters insofar that I still need a crafter to to make me those weapons. I still need that omnidirectional phaser. Captain, so, you know, right now, again, as as Jace pointed out, the, the costs are very heavily dependent on on the exchange right now and what the in-game economy is like, but to help you figure out exactly how much it's going to cost you to upgrade all of those items on your precious starship, we're going to bring on Mighty Bob, who created an amazing spreadsheet to help the community figure out what it costs to upgrade your items. All right, Captains, in this week's Community Spotlight, we bring on Mighty Bob of the Talshiar's Most Wanted. And I've invited him onto the show because he's created a very valuable tool for the Star Trek Online community that you may not be aware that it exists. And that tool is a Google spreadsheet available to everyone, and it helps players figure out the costs of upgrading items in the game. Mighty Bob, thank you for uh, coming on the show and giving us uh, this brief introduction and walkthrough. Hi, thanks for having me. 
Now, I actually came across this in your forum signature. Uh, you had a link to it. And it's a very, very detailed spreadsheet. And for some people, a spreadsheet like this can be a little overwhelming. So before we get into the how to use the spreadsheet, why don't you tell us a little bit about the genesis of this particular project and what inspired you to put it together? Well, so first the uh, upgrade system was announced and then it went on to Tribble, of course. And it actually started out as a suggestion to a different user entirely. He's called De Belgrave, and he's a really prolific spreadsheet maker. And he's got one for research and development. And I actually asked, hey, so once we have this data out, would you add some cool stuff to your R&D spreadsheet? And I ended up making a simple little calculator to show as an example. And then I couldn't stop myself, and I just made this entire spreadsheet. Awesome. Now, talk to us a little bit about the research in putting together a spreadsheet like this. Where did you pull the numbers from? How did you verify them? Oh, more hours on Tribble than I would like to admit to, basically. Uh, Just jumped on Tribble and started upgrading things. Just count how much tech points every item needed, make a note of it, upgrade stuff and then repeat ad nauseum. I've got a note on the spreadsheet that says uh, any of the values that are bold and red in the tables are just extrapolations. So that means anything that's in normal black text is something that I actually directly did on the Tribble server. So all of that stuff is things that I directly upgraded myself just to check the tech point values. So, all right, let's jump into the spreadsheet itself here for a second and maybe go from, from top to bottom here. When a... Star Trek Online user goes into the spreadsheet. Uh, Links, of course, to the spreadsheet will be in our show notes. Where do they start? Where do they even begin? Well, if they just want to look at everything, uh, all they have to do is load up the spreadsheet and take a look. If they want to actually use the little calculator at the top, uh, they'll have to make a copy of the spreadsheet, and they can do that from the file menu right over here. And there's a make a copy option, and that requires them to have a Google uh, account or there's also uh, download options from that same file menu. But uh, in testing the download options, I've noticed that sometimes it doesn't properly save the formulas uh, because you can get an offline version as an XLS or an open document format. Uh, But to actually, gee, I guess decipher all of this, uh, it's got a few basic sections and then it just repeats for different types of gear. And the tables list from uh, starting at a Mark 1 item, how many tech points you need to get to Mark 2, and then starting at Mark 2 to get to Mark 3, and so on and so forth. All right, so Mighty Bob, so I have, for instance, a Mark 12 fleet anti-proton beam, okay? When I right-click, of course, I go to upgrade item, and the new window pops up. So this one I have not invested any uh, upgrade points or tech points to yet. So where would I go to calculate how much ultimately it's going to cost me to get not only to 13 but ultimately to 14 uh, without even changing the, the, uh, the rarity? So when you slot something into the upgrade window, it'll tell you how many tech points you need to upgrade it to the next level. And we can see on this uh, particular beam that it wants 72,000 tech points. So when you go to the sheet, all the tables tell you uh, exactly what that's going to cost you. So if This counts as a normal weapon, so it's in this first table right here in the top left, and it's asking for 72,000 tech points, uh, which lines up with what the game is telling you, so that's, what's that, 
still, let's see, row 23. So it's F23, it's the ultra rare column, and it wants 72,000. Uh, you don't necessarily need to look at the column for that. That's just kind of a way of telling without looking at the particular item in the game. So you take that and then you can plug it up into that green slot there, cell uh, C2, and you just plug in 72,000 and hit enter and it will calculate how many basic or improved or superior or experimental uh, tech upgrades you'll need and then it'll also calculate how much dilithium it'll cost to apply those how much EC it would cost in order to craft it yourself or if you're using the basics how much it would cost to buy that from the vendor and then just for fun I also threw in how much Zen would that equate to at the current exchange rate and uh, I'm if you look at the current exchange rate in the game, you can find that and plug that into J2, and it'll calculate that all out for you. Okay, so therefore, let's if I have superiors, it's going to cost me one superior upgrade applies 12,800 tech points. So I need six of them in order to meet that 72,000 requirement. Um, the dilithium cost is going to be a total of 6450 and the to if i were to craft the items myself if i were to craft the a one superior upgrade it'll it would cost me 90,000 ec uh it's 90,000 for all six of the ones that you need since they're the 15,000 each so i'm not a crafter right so i would if if i asked if i asked my buddy skiffy to craft this for me i would essentially owe him 90,000 yeah, you'd owe him 90,000 energy credits and whatever materials are needed in order to craft it. Okay. Tell me why the Zen is important here. It's not necessarily important. That was mostly just kind of a trivia column. Okay. Although it's, it's sort of a way to gauge your costs um, in a method other than energy credits or dilithium. So that 42, what it means is that that's 6,450 equates to 42 zen yeah roughly and so in the top right we've got obviously the sheet is brought to you by me and i got a nice short url to link back to it and then i got a note here which is a fairly important note that any cell that has a little black triangle in the top right corner has a note in it that you can read by hovering your cursor over it and then if you hover over it this is what a note looks like and bacon is in fact awesome <laughs> and so i've got a lot of these spread out through the whole spreadsheet some of them are just little notes, like for example, in this particular column and cell, I tried this upgrade on this particular item. And then other ones, like in the first column for stuff about rarity increases, uh, that's explanatory text that will say, like for example, the tech points to a try a rarity increase when you're already at mark 14 uh, is this much. And if it fails, you can, it'll roll over and you can add this much again and again until finally your upgrade succeeds. So a lot of this, a lot of this from row 10 down is essentially reference, is essentially what the game is already requiring. So a, a player, when they go into this, isn't really entering any data into any of these cells. Where they're really entering data, what, the interactive part of the spreadsheet is from this, this top section here. Yeah. The only two cells that players will actually enter anything into is are the two green ones at the top, C2 and J2. I suppose now would be a really good time to note that 
this entire table of references and the calculator up at the top are they're kind of worst case scenario because there's a nifty thing with the crafting system where every time you apply one of those tech upgrades it has a chance to do a little mini crit and it'll add 1.5 or two times the amount of tech points that it normally applies so if a superior kit will apply 12,800 if it crits it could apply 19,200 which will save you a bit of dilithium and a bit of energy credits because then you won't need as many Right, right. So this is essentially worst case scenario. Or the calculation is essentially no modifier, no crits. Yeah, exactly. Because those are kind of hard to calculate because they're all probabilities. Right. Is that what these modifiers are up here in row nine? Uh, No, those modifiers are basically a way of comparing the different qualities to each other. So Uh if we call a common Mark I item 1.0 then we can see that an uncommon Mark I item is 1.2 times the cost of a common one, and a rare is 1.4, and so on and so forth. And then we get some really weird modifiers when it comes to reputation gear and lobby store gear. Uh, Yeah, it's really interesting. Essentially what you're saying is it is 2.656 more costly to upgrade a, a rare versus a very rare. Uh, no, all, all the way back to the common. So it is 2.656 times oh, I see, I see, more I see. costly to upgrade a very rare reputation piece of gear than it is to upgrade a common regular piece of gear. And then uh, the more multipliers uh, are vertical for the costs relative to each mark level. So, for example, uh, if we go all the way down to 13 and 14, it costs you two times as much to upgrade from 13 to 14 as it does from 12 to 13. Right, I see. And that's not necessarily information that the player needs to know. It's just kind of cool trivia to have, but it might also fuel somebody else's spreadsheet because there have been other spreadsheets that have been kind of spin-offs or that have used data from this sheet that I put together, and they're very helpful, and I wholly recommend them. There's a couple of other sheets that, that I keep plugging, that are like really, really detailed in managing your resources. I've got links to them down at the bottom. Uh, it's in the black box right there, rows 85 to 92. The first link, Great Upgrade Calculator by, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Hadoho or Hadauhau. That one's pretty good. You can input prices of everything for the very rare and the rare materials on the exchange in the top section. And then there's columns for, do I want to use superior upgrades in column J, or do I want to use improved upgrades? And you can actually compare and contrast how much that will cost. And then if you scroll down to the bottom, there's also a section for inputting, oh, I already have this much rubidium, or I already have these many uh, radiogenic particles, and it can tell you how much you can save. And then down at the bottom, it'll give you a great uh, estimate for how much that will cost. And then there's another sheet uh, at by uh, De Belgrave, and it's got upgrade requirements. It's got a list of those special R&D DOFs that you need to craft stuff at level 15, project requirements and costs, and it, tracking your own levels. There's a whole bunch of sheets like this throughout the community, and uh, if you hit the links tab at the bottom here or on my own sheet, 
there's links to all these other cool spreadsheets. You guys at Priority One could probably do an entire series of episodes just on all these cool resources uh, that we're all kind of just putting out there for the community. It's just, you know, the great irony is that I, I kind of hate doing math, and yet here I am buried in spreadsheet land doing math. Right, just kind right, of, right. Just kind of for my own amusement, which is weird. No, but it certainly helps the community. And I think that, you know, whether or not you're a casual player trying to wrap your head around the upgrade system, these tools make it very easy for you to figure out, all right, what, what is the end cost going to be in terms of upgrading an entire ship to Mark 14? It's either going to be very expensive or – and just one ship, right? And, you know, some people – and this is probably the, the biggest concern that the community has is that – you know, upgrading just one ship can cost you well over a thousand zen, right? If you were just yeah. doing, if you were just doing ships, you know, maybe two thousand zen. And th- and this is where you know, for instance, this infograph it confuses me a little bit because where is this fifteen thousand four hundred and eighty zen coming from for a tier six ship? Is that per ship for the four ships that are involved? Like, what if I want to upgrade my Avenger, which is a tier five upgrade? You know, how much Zen is that ultimately going to cost me? There's actually a forum thread for this uh, particular infographic. And uh, I suppose the link will probably be uh, put up with the podcast. And I actually asked them a couple questions about the infographic. Some of it was a bit confusing. And any any dilithium and Zen figures that they're citing are from grinding dilithium to buy the packs mostly. Like, it's definitely not going to cost you 15,000 Zen to upgrade a single ship. Uh, it could get up there depending on how many ships you're upgrading and across how many characters. I mean, you're looking at possibly the price of one or more lifetime subs if you're really, really going for gold on a whole bunch of gear. Well, Mighty Bob, is there anything that we didn't cover from this Excel spreadsheet that uh, you wanted to highlight or spotlight and make uh, the community aware of? I guess the links tab down at the bottom is, is mostly it. There was the links from the other spreadsheet, but I'm just kind of trying to get all of this stuff together in one central location just to be as helpful as possible because there's a lot of community resources out there and a whole lot of players probably don't know about most of these. And it's just great to have this kind of information at your fingertips. Absolutely. Well, Mighty Bob, I want to thank you for spending some time with us here on Priority One Podcast to introduce the community to these types of tools and, and then how to use them as well. Uh, because, again, you know, when you first open up the, the, the spreadsheet and it you know, goes right to this, it can be a little daunting for those of us that aren't uh, as comfortable with Excel. But, you know, after having this introduction, I think players will be able to start looking at it and start using them to their advantage to figure out how best to play Star Trek Online and, and how to get the biggest bang for their buck. Yeah, thank you for having me. And uh, if anybody has questions about this, my handle is right there on the sheet. That's why it's there. And uh, keep your eyes peeled because there's other cool things that are being worked on. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mighty Bob. It's a pleasure having you. Security clearance level 3 or above is required to access files. This is Captain Benjamin Sisko. Authorization Sisko Alpha 1 Alpha. Logs accessed. All right, Captains, and our second interview for this amazing adventure here at Cryptic Studios is with Joshua Ross and Keenan Doffelt, environment artist. Now, we're going to be talking about uh, Dragon's Deceit, 
why don't we go ahead and first introduce you to uh, to, to our audience. Uh, John, what? Please tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do here with, at Cryptic. Sure. Uh, I'm a content designer uh, for Cryptic. I've been here about a little over two years. Um, and I've done a lot of different uh, various story content and cues and so forth. Uh, I've been here for uh, about a year as an environment artist for just over a year. Um, I've been doing lots and lots of kits and uh, uh, level design kind of stuff, uh, fleshing out all the maps, everything you see that isn't a person is basically the job of an environment artist. So uh, lots and lots of new stuff, this this whole expansion. Yeah. What would you say was the most different about working on Delta Rising than the projects that you had previously worked on? Because you got all new areas, all new races, new architecture, new environments. Well, uh, you know, I had worked on Legacy of Romulus, our last expansion, so there were some parallels to it, but I think, at least for me, the, the biggest difference is that I had a, really a lot of story content um, in, this, in this episode. I actually worked on four different episodes, so a pretty significant portion of the story content was actually mine, which is um, both really gratifying and a little nerve-wracking mm-hmm. to have so much kind of, you know, hanging on you. So, what about you, Keenan? Uh, I thought I thought it was a. I wasn't here for uh, Legacy of Romulus. I came in right around the tail end of the, the Dyson Sphere thing stuff. Um, so, but doing the the whole new area and all the new races, it was a really cool opportunity as environment artists because all of the architecture and all of the the kind of design of all the different races and stuff was only just barely kind of glanced upon in the in the show. Um, so it was a lot of stuff we could kind of take little tiny little design cues and just expand them into something really big and believable and just kind of as a team or you know as a group of people just sit down and really design what an entire race's structures or, or ships or, or whatever it looks like and that's a really fun thing to do um, instead of you know using a lot of stuff that's really well established in the IP or stuff that's been in the game for a long time because it's all new. One of the really cool things was um, the amount of celebrity voice talent that we got. Um, it was just it's really amazing to, you know, write some dialogue and then hear, you know, Ethan Phillips as Neelix or Robert Ricardo as the doctor delivering these lines he wrote. Like, it's just a, it's a sort of a little bit of a fanboy moment. We would all kind of cluster outside of the recording room and like listen in, you know. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty cool. To, the, the amount of talent that we got, uh, I think, really brings a lot to the expansion, too, mm-hmm. having the celebrities. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Dragon's Deceit. Why don't we get a, a brief overview of, of the mission itself, uh, and then get, get into the nitty-gritty, you know, discussing uh, its creation and any hurdles you might have uh, faced while, while building it. Dragon's Deceit, you are um, you're infiltrating a Vodwar base, and you're investigating why it seems to be that the Vodwar are so um, physically powerful and how they've sort of reclaimed their uh, empire uh, so quickly. You've gotten sort of hints that there might be something more nefarious going on behind the scenes. And so um, for this episode, a lot of my inspiration came from uh, the TNG episode, Chain of Command. So that's where um, Crusher and Worf and Picard uh, beam down to these caves on this planet, and then they're kind of spelunking and rappelling through these caves. Um, and then also uh, Mission Impossible, James Bond. I really wanted to have it kind of this 
covert infiltration, Espionage. gadgets, and... Uh, yeah, this was the first time that we get to use the grapple gun. Yeah, and actually that was one of the big hurdles with developing this, is that, that so it was a new technology, and so because of that, it was being developed as we were working on it. So there was a lot of iteration and a lot of designing around it and you know, and maybe not knowing exactly how things were gonna fit together and then coming back and, uh, and polishing it and making it all, tweaking it so it all worked together. And a lot of communication between the teams, between um, software who was doing a lot of the actual technology and animation who was doing the animations it all kind of had to fit together, um, and so that was a lot of coordination and a lot of effort. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about the writing. I saw something different in this mission that I'd never seen before. There was a little bit of romance, well, an attempt of romance. <laughs> sure. And I want to know, because like I said, I was very surprised that that was in there, and it was actually kind of fun, a lot of fun, actually. Um, how did you get away with doing that? What was the process? I mean, were you afraid they weren't going to let you, or did you just go for it? Or did... <laughs> You know, they give us a lot of latitude. Um, and to a certain extent, you know, we all have different styles. And I like to try as much as I can to include some fun, you know, uh, something funny, humorous, or just interesting, interesting choices. And, you know, lots of times you just kind of put stuff out there and if it works, you know, they'll let you keep it in. Um, and I think it works in this case. And it was also a situation where, you know, I wanted to have you have sort of different dialogue choices. I mean, so often it's just a matter of having sort of one choice in a linear progression. In this particular case, the outcome isn't different, but it, you get you get that kind of moment of feeling like I can approach this like my captain would, how I imagine mm -hmm. it. That's and, how, yeah. and it ultimately kind of forced you down one path to get through it. But in the meantime, you can kind of meander and and uh, and use your imagination. I like to when I, I mean, one of the things I love about Star Trek Online is um, it's kind of silly, but the duty officer system. I kind of like tell these fun little stories in my mind when I send my duty officers to go up to, to do assignments and stuff. So I feel like part of our game is not only just the experience that we provide, but also the story that you tell in your mind with your with your captain. It was fun. I had a lot of fun with, with that portion of it. And as soon as that portion was over, I immediately started talking about it with my fleet mates and friends. And I was like, did you guys see this? This is scandalous. Oh my goodness. So let's jump in a little bit to the actual design of the mission and um, talk about any hurdles that you might have uh, had with its design. This one had a lot. Yes, this, this was a lot of work. a lot of hurdles. Uh, <laughs> We did a lot of things in, in this mission that uh, you don't typically see in, in Star Trek Online very often, um, and that was a deliberate decision. You know, we want it's an expansion, and we want to kind of push in areas that we just haven't really gone into a lot, um, and not even just in like the new races and everything, but in actually like the gameplay. Um, so we, we made some decisions to like we wanted to have some really big reveals where you're coming out of kind of narrow passageways into like a great big open cavern, and and it was a and then, like all the stuff with the the, the zip line and the uh, repelling was all brand new, and we were 
develop, developing level parallel to them developing the tech for that. And so it's a lot of kind of guesswork and then adjustments and then a guesswork and then adjustments. Um, and just trying to figure out the best way to traverse a space that we don't typically deal with in Star Trek very often at all with a lot more kind of platforming stuff and big open spaces. Um, From a design standpoint, you know, our game is not, it's an MMO. It's not a stealth game. It's not, you know, um, Metal Gear or something like that. So, so a lot of it was trying to figure out uh, how to give that feeling of tension and suspense in a game that's where the mechanics themselves aren't necessarily, don't necessarily lend themselves. So it's a lot of sort of um, manipulating the environment, you know, using consoles to, um, to, to trap patrols or to misdirect, to cause diversions, to, um, to uh, there's a part where you use anesthesia gas to knock out some some uh, troops so um, so that was really tricky to, you know to both to simultaneously make you feel like you're potentially going to get caught at any moment while making it so the player can't actually break the mission that was like one of the hardest sort of tensions to maintain and it took a lot of a lot of iteration to get to get that feel. So how did you make the, the rappel and the zipline? Like, how did that... Uh, clearly, it's new tech. Tell us how fun it was to work with them. <laughs> uh, so it was kind of funny because at first, it was a little bit of a black box in that, you know, they told me that this is sort of a marquee episode, so you get a little bit more uh, resources allocated. And we wanted to do this... Th- there was this idea out there that we wanted to do this different kind of movement. And so, you know, we met, I met with one of the programmers and we talked about you know sort of the specs of what it would be like and then I just kind of went ahead with designing the mission to a certain extent around this um, and then just sort of took it on faith that it was going to be awesome which is which is tricky for a designer um, but then once I actually tried it the first time in the, the very first iteration of it I was like oh my god this is awesome this is going to be so great you know um so it was a lot of a lot of just going on faith um but we have you know an amazing team and so I trusted that in the end we would come up with something that was that was really amazing but it definitely you know it was a little little anxiety producing not knowing um because I guess so much of the episode hangs on that that not not being able to like really feel it until we were pretty far along in the process was was um, a little tricky. So basically, you know, my role was sort of this is like just designing. This is where the areas that you will be crossing using this tech go, and and I kind of prototyped out a little bit of uh, how it might feel. So I did a little these little mini cutscenes for the zip lines, for example, of you kind of shooting over these gaps, so that you could kind of get it, so that the leads and um, so forth could get kind of a sense of what it would feel like when it was done. Yeah. So then, um, and then that got replaced. Uh, so again, it was a very iterative process. You know, it didn't all happen at once. And then, so once we sort of got the technology working and the placement, then we kind of handed it off to our animators, who then got the you know the sort of mounting animations and the various 
because there's several different ways that you move. You know, there's there's kind of just traversing over a gap, hand, kind of hand over hand, and there's ziplining down, and there's rappelling down off of a wall. And so the animator then, you know, took all of that and um, adjusted it so the animation looked well. And we actually had to make some environment changes to to accommodate our animations and so make sure that you know when you're repelling down the wall that you're you're kicking, actually touching solid things, and, and so forth. The rappel and the traverse, you can control the speed. You can stop, and you can go and stop. And I really like that because I like to move my, my angle so where I can see it better, or like to the side, and go fast. And then um, you can also do emotes while you're in there. Like I did the sleeping emote, and it's just <laughs> boing, boing, boing. <laughs> I, haven't tr- I haven't tested out a lot of the other ones yet, but since I got to play this one so many times, I got kind of... Um, I explored a little bit with it. But I was also... I, I appreciated this mission because, like I said, I did hit a bug at the end, so I couldn't finish it, and I kept trying, but... Of all the missions that that could have happened to, I'm glad it was this one because it's so much fun and I'm still not sick of it. And when it comes on holodeck, I'm not going to have any problem doing it again. I'm not going to be like, oh, i got to do this one again because it's a fun mission and I really enjoy doing it. Oh, thank you. That's so great to hear. You know, it's hard with... Um, you want to make something that people will, will enjoy and want to replay over and over, but that's really hard to do. Um, we do it, and usually the way we do it is sort of randomization so that people can play it over and it's a bit of a different experience. But with a mission like this, you know, it's, it, it had to be fairly linear um, just because of the mechanics. And so I'm really glad that it was still fun for you to play it several times. Yes, you know? and another thing I liked was, you know how you sneak up behind the guard? I really yeah. like getting really close and then doing the physical, the one where you just... You just the work. melee strike. Yeah. Yeah. I like doing that. You can do that with the rocks, too, if you're in the right spot. You can also push the rocks. Oh, I haven't even Instead tried Instead of shooting it, you can yeah. you can actually push it. One of my favorite things about this mission is, um, you know, use, if you use a weapon with knockback, you can actually shoot them and knock them awesome. off. I did the, that one yeah, time. So, I tried to recreate really it, fun. but I couldn't recreate it again. I'm like, how did I manage that? Because I, re- yeah. I, I enjoyed that. You have to be like, just the right spot, you know. Um, I think I think there's maybe some opportunity in the future for for another mission. I mean, another nice thing is now that we have this technology, we can use it in other places. And, you know, when it lends itself to, say, ladders or, or other sorts of environments. I think every mission should have at least one <laughs> Grapple gun <laughs> I have a question, uh, probably mostly for Keenan, but you know, you guys can both chime in. As far as designing the the look and feel of a mission like this, where you have obviously what it's sort of supposed to in the fiction look and feel like, but at the same time, you're you're conveying the both the pacing and, and things like you guys were mentioning with the big reveals and sort of the claustrophobic feeling of yeah. being on an Intel mission. How do you balance those two sort of the more practical or or in-universe reasons to build something a certain way versus the more emotional or story reasons? Uh, well, it was it was definitely a challenge because um, on top of you know all of that, I was making everything from scratch, so it was a, it was a little bit of a, a crunch. But I, I feel like a lot of it um, we had to accomplish with with lighting or anything else because you know a great big I mean it's not an exterior scene. But you go out, you know, you get out of the tunnels and it's this great big cavern and you want to, even though it's a really big space, you want it to feel, still really feel like you're underground and you're in your deep cover kind of thing. Um, so it was a lot 
of work with lighting. I spent a lot of time lighting and relighting and relighting and re I must have relit that cavern like six times. Um, just trying to get everything to just feel right, where the, the light is directing you where you need to go and it's not showing you things you shouldn't be able to see and really just kind of crunching your field of view into what you're actually dealing with. So you feel like this is kind of big but claustrophobic space around you the whole time. Very cool. One of the fun things for me was trying to just make this feel like um, like a real alive place so that there's sort of these activities going on all around you while you're sneaking through. So one of my favorite parts is there's a part where you have to zip line, but there's a shuttle in the way and you move it on a crane. And then as you're going through, you know, it falls and... Uh, crashes and burns and then you rappel down there and there's vaudoir with fire extinguishers like putting out the flyer yeah. so um, I love little touches like that and the, I mean that's what's really gratifying to me and and you know some players a lot of players probably blow right through it and not even see it but it's for me it's those little tiny touches that that kind of really bring it to life and I just think the the lighting in uh, on this episode really adds because it's lighting is so tricky because you know it has you want to have it be atmospheric, but it's a game, so the player still has to be able to see mm-hmm. what they're doing. So I think Kina did a really good job with, with like, uh, you know, having pools of light, and so you're sort of moving from pools of light, so you can see what you're doing, but it still has that sort of atmospheric kind of effect. Well, gentlemen, we want to thank you for spending some time with us here, and if, if there's any, is there anything that we haven't covered that uh, you wanted to mention and, and point out, something that uh, you're most proud of? I do have a quick anecdote. Okay. And uh, in one of our first uh, set of, of white box playables, when the leads and stuff were testing it, we had this area, like right after you cross, like across your second big round pillar, and you go along the wall, and uh, there was a spot there where right now you just kind of go along the wall and you climb up into the rocks. But at the time, our, our initial pass, there was like steam vents that would like you'd have to time it so you'd have to cross the steam vents without getting blown off and, and die. <clears throat> but the physics weren't really quite working. So like if you as you walked across, you'd get hit by a steam vent and it would launch you like, <laughs> way up. And, and you know there's this that spot like right across that you're trying to get to. It's like a hole in the rocks. Um, that you, you kind of walk underneath you, this little archway and so the, the leads and everybody were testing is just kind of stayed there for like 15 minutes just, and they made like a little game of like basketball <laughs> like trying to launch their character from the steam vents through the hole in the rock that they were trying to get to and it was that was a lot of, that, it got cut because we never it was something we it, it was going to take extra time to get it working right and we wanted to focus more on the, you know, the things that we really wanted in there like the zip lining stuff but it was a. Uh, that was fun. Hopefully, you can use it in the future. Yeah. Right. There you go. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time and for. Thank you. With us today. Just a few yes. days before uh, before Delta Rising, I'm sure it's it's been very busy. Uh, so thank you very much for taking some time this morning on uh, on a Friday to sit down and, talk and uh, chat with us. Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies. Open. See, we are getting to know each other. All right, Captains, we've opened Hailing Frequencies to find out your answers to last week's community question. And that was, what do you think about the changes to the content rewards, ship mastery, and content difficulty for the content in Delta Rising? Starting us off is Sean Newboy, writing via PriorityOnePodcast.com. I can't wait for them all to come onto the holodeck. About time. And wonderful episode. Thanks, Christine and Kate, for stopping by. And also on PriorityOnePodcast.com, 
Dazzo UK writes, Hi P1 team, I enjoyed your episode today. I have taken it upon myself to start a new tune to see if the level gate is the same at 50 in a new tune. I'm a casual player that pugs a lot. I'm no noob, but I do agree with the P1 team. It needs organization to attempt the elite and at the moment advanced. Hey Dazzo UK, let us know what the results are as you level through 50. I'd like to know if you get through all the content, the actual mission content, including Delta Rising content, way before you hit 60. I'm, I'm just curious to see what that turns out to look like. In terms of the gear, well, <laughs> it's unlikely you'll get to that point, just like the rest of us, but we'll see. Jason Rathbun writes on Facebook, there have always been level gates on episodic content, and I have hit the wall before. But it wasn't a big deal before, because episode replay gave enough XP that going back and playing a classic mission would fix the issue. This was one of the things I loved about Star Trek Online when I started it. Delta Rising just feels like a World of Warcraft grind, because they severely nerfed the episode replay XP, even on the new Delta content. I've just been doing the Argala Patrol to grind levels, and this is disappointing. And I have to agree. Uh, I, you know, fortunately with this tune, I mentioned last week or the week before that uh, I've been doing missions on Nimbus that I hadn't done on this tune before just to get enough XP to level. Yeah, because missions that you haven't done give you by far the most. I do have a friend who is a new player who recently, before Delta Rising, had just reached 50th, and she, by very diligently keeping her DOF queues filled, is leveling up at a pretty good rate. I know I personally had fallen off and rarely fill up my full 20 DOF assignment slots. So maybe that's helping folks out. Uh, I don't know how much of a boost it's giving, but that was just a little anecdote I heard. I think I uh, might have mentioned last week, uh, there are, if, if you patrol the Delta sectors and the Solene Dyson Sphere uh, regularly, there are missions, DOF missions, that will give you between one and... I found one for 3,000 uh, XP per normal completion. You get even more if you crit. So you can stack up on five or six of those per day if you look for them. So that's a nice little chunk. Got to help a little bit. Word Collis commented via PriorityOnePodcast.com, Great show as always, but I find I must make a correction to a statement you made. We would expect nothing less, Word Collis. Thank you. To get the full width and breadth of STO, it would take a total of 12 characters, not 9. Fed Romulan and KDF Romulan play very differently and have access to much different setups in regard to Fed and KDF ships and lockbox drops. I'm sorry, why is it 12? Because it's not just Federation Romulan and KDF, but Federation Romulan and KDF allied Romulan. Oh, that's a very good point. Yeah, that is a good yeah. point. I didn't even I hadn't even considered that. Mission-wise, you tend to just dovetail into the rest of the KDF or Federation storyline, but as far as what it counts as faction or cross-faction for you in Sea uh, Store consoles versus lockbox consoles, uh, it's a fair point. Uh, Fleet Admiral Winters commented on Priority One podcast. I completely agree with you that it is really difficult to go through Delta Rising and the new systems that came with it having multiple tunes. Don't get me wrong, I think that they have done a great job, but something needs to be done or added similar to the changes in the reputation system. However, I do disagree that any change should be monetized. The change to the reputation system wasn't, and that encouraged me to buy more character slots, lock box keys for lobby crystals, bank and inventory space, doff packs, and I could go on. 
I wonder, could there be an account unlock once you earn all 60 specialization points on one character that would let all alt tunes on an account earn times X more XP and or skill points? I know for myself and others in my fleet who have multiple tunes, we feel that a faster way to earn specialization points on alt tunes is badly wanted. Keep up the great work. This I do agree with. There is an account unlock uh, for veterans and lifetime members where you get a 5% XP bonus once you hit, uh, I don't remember what the days is, 600, 700 days, something like that. It's, it's Seriously? Because I don't feel it. <laughs> yeah, fi- but 5% in the grand scheme of things is not a lot. And especially when we're talking about the large gaps in XP requirements to get from 58 to 59 to, to 60 so it's 5% really isn't a lot. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree. So unlocking the specialization points, if, if you have a way to earn those faster on alts or just make them a one-time thing. Tony said years a year ago that they need to start treating the, the player as a customer and not each character as a customer. And they took strides in the right direction, and now it sure feels like they're taking strides back. But, well, here, here's the thing, though, is that now we have characters that want to be able to take advantage of discounts so do they treat each character as a an account ultimately the question i want to ask is here we are getting feedback about alts right and we have feedback coming in about about the upgrade system there is so much about delta rising that so many people are passionate about that there is no way that we're priority one is going to be able to cover that all in one episode and there are some things that we may not even get to discuss be that as it may, we appreciate everybody's feedback, and we're going to try to cover all the key features, especially those that, that really grind our gears about Delta Rising, if any at all, and what we can do and what we can suggest to help improve on the quality of gameplay for Star Trek Online. Sanox Skyrat posted on PriorityOnePodcast.com, Okay, guys, it's driving me crazy. Zephram Cochran's shotgun also made a second appearance in the episode. It was on the wall as well as other weapons in the captain's office of the NX Enterprise. No way! Archer takes it off the wall and tells T'Pol what he thinks of Vulcans and why they are slaves and how great Zephram Cochran was. It's a great scene and everyone needs to rewatch the episode. Oh, I totally forgot about that. I remember it now that he detailed it. Yeah, I, I forgot about that. It. I'm going to have to watch the episode. That was great. Starwolf emailed us at... Incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. The good, the bad, and the ugly of Cochrane's shotgun. Zephram Cochrane shotgun. It has a good kick, but she's pretty in line with all other shotguns in Star Trek Online, except instead of energy, she's physical. Which is a really welcome thing when fighting against the Alachi and Borg. However, I wish they made her different from the other shotguns in game. For starters, Cochrane's shotgun is a military single-barreled pump shotgun, which doesn't explain the two different firing modes. So why not use the ammo system for Cochrane's shotgun, with the secondary function being the pumping mechanism and the third function being the shell reload? That way, instead of two different blasts like every other shotgun, you could have a rapid-fire system, limited by the number of shells that the gun carries, so it wouldn't end up being overpowered. The ugly... Let's just say the sound doesn't sound like a shotgun. Aw, really? I haven't gotten mine yet. I want to hear... 
Well, what does it sound like then? Just like a phaser? Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> Maybe it just sounds know. like a pulse wave. I don't. I have to see it. In game. Fortunately, if they wanted to, if Cryptic wanted to, they could fix this. That's an ultimatum, you guys who listen to the show at the studio. You hear that? He says, "If you want to, you could fix it." <laughs> well, Captains, each week our social media channels are busy with your thoughts, your opinions, and suggestions for the show. And like we mentioned in the introduction for this episode, we love to hear from you. So please keep it coming. We love the dialogue. You can reach out to us on Facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast. Or you can follow us on Twitter at STO Priority One. Or you can shoot an email to incoming at Priority One Podcast.com. Well, Admirals, that wraps up episode 198 of Priority One Podcast. Be sure to catch our episodes every Monday morning by pointing your podcast catchers to feeds.priorityonepodcast.com. And don't miss our videos from our trip to Cryptic Studios by heading over to youtube.com forward slash P, the number one, network. And of course, you can visit priorityonepodcast.com for all of our content. Captains, you know we love hearing from you. Let us know what you think of the show and submit your responses for our community question in the comments section for our site or on the Star Trek Online forum post for this episode. This week's question is, how much have you spent on upgrades? Did you bother grinding or did you buy it outright with a Zen to Lithium conversion? Share your numbers with us. Let us know in the comments section for this episode on PriorityOnePodcast.com or in the official post for this episode on the Star Trek Online forums. Stay in touch with us throughout the week by following our social media websites. Head over to facebook.com forward slash priority one podcast and give us a like. Or check us out on Twitter via at STO Priority One. You can even join the Priority One podcast chat in game. Just type forward slash channel underscore join space priority one. Admirals, we want to thank you for your ongoing support of Priority One Podcast. Find out about how you can support the show on a monthly basis by visiting patreon.com forward slash priority one. And don't forget to tune into Priority One Productions Guard Frequency Podcast at guardfrequency.com. It's a pretty good show. You should check it out. The Priority One fleet is recruiting. If you're interested in joining, just shoot us an email with your at handle and we'll be sure to send you an invite. The email is incoming at priorityonepodcast.com. And now you can join our Klingon Fleet Division. Warriors of Priority One. Join today. Papla. A very special thanks to Perfect World Entertainment and Cryptic Studios for spending two full days with us in October to discuss all things Delta Rising. Thanks to the entire team behind Priority One Podcast, including our audio engineers, Skiffy and Ben Churchill, and to our QA support staffer, Midnight Shadow 7. Thanks to our graphic artist, Rami Linnale, and to all our bloggers and their managing editor, L. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. Thanks to our video editor, Jerry Tillman, and assistant writer, Jake Morgan. Thanks to our syndication partners, Epic Gamer Radio, Subspace Radio, and Trek Radio. But most importantly, a big thanks to you, the Star Trek Online community, our listeners, because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Red alert. Shields up. Ready weapons. Engage.
transfer complete. This is Jace, intro sync two. This is Cookie, intro sync three. <laughs> and even if you can't donate, you can still support us by dialoguing with us. Your comments, your questions, your tweets, Facebook messages, in-game chants, in-game chats, they all mean the world to us, and it lifts our spirits to encourage, to engage. I like in-game chants. We should yeah. start doing some in-game chants. <laughs> Hoorah, P1. Oh, I like that better. That's even better. Donna A's Requiem. Bonk. At about 3.1 miles wide, in between one and a half to two and a half miles. Wait, what did I say? It's the size of Texas, Mr. President. All right. <laughs> you can even join the Priority One podcast chat in game. Yay, he's back! I knew I'm you uncomfortable. It. <laughs> Cap. Admirals. He read it like a boss. <laughs> As a boss. As a boss. As a boss. <laughs>